in last week of Jesus' life. Last week, it, last week we looked at the Tuesday, the last week of his life. It was his last public messages. And his last message he gave, he was looking forward to two events. One, uh, the destruction of Jerusalem, which would happen in about 40 years. And the other, his return, which was the undefined future, the indeterminate future. And he gave two words. One was watch. And that's really given to people who think the choices that they make in this life don't matter. And he said, I'm coming back, and I'm going to ask you what you did while I was gone. That's, again, don't hear that as, uh, he's not coming back to grade you. He's, just, he's coming back saying, hey, how did you do? So it's much more, I think, excited than coming back um, disappointed. And then the second word he gives is pray. And that's for people who think the choices in this life matter too much. And he's saying, you need to invite me in to the day-to-day things that are going on in your life. Don't get... Don't let your heart be weighed down by the cares of this world. And so that's what we looked at last week. This week we're going to look at his last private message. So this was the last public sermon that he gave. Today we're going to look at his last message to the 12, his 12 disciples, before he is crucified. So we don't know what happens on Wednesday. It appears nothing. It was a quiet day. So now we're Thursday. Jesus is crucified on Friday. So this is the last day of his life. Remember, it's Passover week. So you've got thousands and thousands of extra pilgrims in Jerusalem. Everybody is thinking about Exodus and being delivered from Egyptian bondage. You've got the religious leaders who are not happy with Jesus and the way he's been conducting himself, over the, particularly over these last few days. So all of those things are swirling around. We'll pick up in chapter 22. This first section, you can maybe think of it as preparation for Passover. So we're going to have the dark side and the light side and how those guys are preparing for Passover. Now, the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give Judas money. Judas consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. Jesus replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. So again, we got the good guys and the bad guys both preparing for Passover. We've got the religious leaders. We see Satan entering the mix again. We really haven't seen him since the wilderness in chapter 4. And now Judas, one of the twelve, all of them are conspiring together for, to, to see Jesus killed. The religious leaders want to kill him. But they're afraid the people are going to riot. That's what we read in Mark 14 too. They're afraid the people are going to riot if they arrest him in public. Jesus, um, excuse me, Judas, on his own initiative, he goes to them and says, How can, what, what can we do here? I'm willing to help you get Jesus in a private way. I'm willing to, to connect you to him so that you can arrest him when nobody else is around. Why would Judas do that? We don't know. None of the Gospels make explicit what his motivation is. We know from John's gospel that Judas was a thief. 
He was the one that, he was the treasurer of the group. So if people gave money to Jesus and the disciples, Judas kept it. And according to John 12, it's, John says he would help himself to what was put in. So he was a thief, and so maybe he was motivated by greed. That's just as good a guess as any. He's actually paid 30 pieces of silver for delivering Jesus to these uh, religious leaders. But again, nobody knows. The Bible never explicitly says what Judas, why Judas does this, why Judas uh, betrays Jesus. And so you've got those guys all over here kind of doing this. And then you have Jesus on the other side, and he's also preparing for the Passover. What he's trying to do is figure out, how can I eat this meal with my core group, with the disciples, without being disturbed? He's very, it's a very important meal for him, and he does not want to be interrupted either by religious leaders or by the crowds. And he has prearranged with somebody. He's already set up with somebody in Jerusalem. The Passover had to be eaten within the walls of the city. And you've got thousands and thousands of people who are looking for a place to eat. And Jesus has prearranged with somebody who's got a room, and that room is already furnished. And so he says to Peter and John, y'all need to go buy the food. There was specific food that had to be eaten. There was a roasted lamb. The lamb had to be killed in a certain way by the priests and roasted. You have to get unleavened bread. You've got to get wine. You've got to get these bitter herbs. You've got to go get all of that stuff. So that's what Peter and John were supposed to go get. They're supposed to get the menu. Jesus has already arranged for the place. And he says, you're going to know the guy because he's going to be carrying a water jar. Men didn't do that. Men carried skins, women carried jars. So it would be easy in this massive city with all of these extra people around to identify who's the one, who's that, which house are we going to. And that way they were able to do everything secretively so that the disciples and Jesus could eat in peace without being interrupted, either again by the religious leaders or by other people. And it appears that Jesus had not told his disciples beforehand. We know that Jesus knew he was going to be betrayed. We know he knew who was going to do it, and it seems that he did not share the Passover. Uh, he didn't share the location in advance. He just said, you're going to know, you find this guy, and then he's going to tell you where to go, and that's how we'll know where to be. And so I think that kept Judas from interrupting that meal. So I, we're, we're going to talk about a lot today. I'm going to try to give you just maybe one take-home from each section, and you're not going to be able to grab onto all of them. It's too many things, so you can just pick which one resonates with you the most. When I read this section, the thing that jumped out at me was this idea of Satan entering Judas. And so what what does that mean? This guy was with Jesus for three years. And if Satan could enter him, then what does that mean for me? And what does that mean for us? Did Satan just kind of take Judas over and possess him? And Judas wasn't really responsible for his actions. And it's not fair. Because it was foreordained that Jesus would be betrayed? Was it like, sorry, Judas, you drew the short straw? And how does all that play out? I don't know how all of it plays out, but I would say Satan entered Judas because Judas was an open door to Satan. You'll see when we look farther in this passage, Satan, Jesus says to the disciples, Satan wants to sift all of y'all. He didn't enter anybody else. He just entered Judas, and I think it's because Judas was an open door. Judas was a thief, we know that. It appears that he was habitually stealing from Jesus and his group. And so what I would say, that means 
Judas was unresponsive to Jesus for some period of time, maybe for the whole time, maybe just towards the end. Some people try to say Jesus or Judas got disillusioned because Jesus would never really become this political and military Messiah that he thought he would be. So he was trying to force his hand. It really doesn't matter. Judas was not responsive to Jesus. And that unresponsiveness creates a hardness in our heart, which it's hard, but it's also an open door to the enemy. And at the opportune time, Satan, according to John, prompts Judas to go and initiate this betrayal. He was an open door. He was a listening ear. If I can say it this way, Judas's and Satan's agendas coincided at that moment, which is tough to say. And the religious leaders, their agendas all coincided at that moment to see Jesus arrested and to see him ultimately Killed. Maybe Judas didn't want to see Jesus killed. He just wanted to see him arrested. It doesn't matter. That was He set the whole thing in motion. So for us, the idea of open doors, even as a Christian, you can't be possessed. That's not what we're talking about. This isn't an exorcist with anybody's head spinning around. This is Satan influencing us. And as a Christian, Satan can influence you. He can influence your heart and your mind. And he does it the same way. He does it through open doors. And the open doors are generally sin-related, either sins that you commit or sins that are committed against you. If you that doesn't mean the one time when you sin, suddenly you have thrown the door wide open to Satan and he's going to enter you and cause you to betray Jesus. It's habitual sins. If you're engaging in behaviors that you know are sinful, you've been convicted, you've chosen to ignore that conviction, that's being unresponsive to the Holy Spirit. If you've chosen to do that, you're continuing to engage in behavior that you know is sinful, you know it's dishonoring to God. What you're doing is you've got a big come on in sign on your heart to the enemy. And it says, I'm open for business. You can influence my heart and you can influence my mind. I'm resisting the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. And so that makes me open to what you're doing. I'm choosing to follow you in this way of sinfulness versus following the Holy Spirit in the way of righteousness. Now, you may not be saying any of those things consciously, but your actions are saying that to him. You are opening a door for his influence in your heart and your mind if you continue to engage in behaviors that you know are sinful. If that's you, I would say repent. That closes the door. As soon as you repent of that sinful behavior, the door is closed. Sins committed against you. You say, that's not fair. I didn't do anything. What about the devil makes you think fair? He doesn't play by any rules. He steals and kills and destroys. There are no rules for him. Sins committed against you can also be an open door. And you can see this in people, particularly some things, people are abused. And you can kind of see how that plays out in their life moving forward. They were victims. They didn't do anything wrong. But the enemy takes advantage of that sin against them. You see that sometimes the people have been burned by other people. How that affects them moving forward. That bitterness that you maybe see. That wariness in relationship. They didn't do anything wrong. But because they didn't forgive, that's an open door. So that's the key. If you're sinned against... No matter how heinous you see that sin being, no matter how heinous it is, if you don't make a choice to forgive, that's also an open door to the enemy to say, come on in. And you can influence my heart and you can influence my mind. In a lot of ways, that looks a lot like fear. It looks a lot like anxiety. It looks a lot like bitterness. It looks a lot like resentment. Those are the things that you see in people who have chosen not to forgive. 
And again, you may say that's not fair. That's not the point. It's reality. If we're, if we're continuing in sin, engaging in behaviors that God says are wrong, we're saying to the enemy, you can influence me. I'm resisting the Holy Spirit. You can influence me. God also tells me to forgive, and if I'm resisting him and extending forgiveness to other people, and there are no exceptions, there are no asterisks on that statement, just forgive. And if I'm resisting the Holy Spirit and choosing not to forgive people, it's the same thing. That's an open door to the enemy to influence my heart and mind. I don't want you freaking out about that at all. It's just reality, and it's not difficult to deal with him. You repent of your sins and you forgive those who've sinned against you, and that closes those doors. How do you know if you're being influenced? I would say if you have a, if there's a pattern that you can't shake, if you say, I just really wrestle with something, and it's something you continue to wrestle with, it may very well be that the enemy, it's kind of supercharged. It's not just a normal struggle. The enemy is working in that area. I'm not blaming you. I'm saying let's just deal with it. Let's figure out where the, where the door is open. Close the door and see if that helps you move forward in freedom. Okay, now Jesus is in the room. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, The cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So now Jesus and the disciples, Jesus and the twelve, are in the upper room, and they're having this Passover meal. And this is really Jesus as a master teacher. What he's doing is he's taking something that's very familiar to them, this Passover meal. It's very tangible. You've got this food, the lamb and the bread and the wine, and he's infusing those things with new meaning. Here's something that you already know, and I'm going to take what you already know, and I'm going to give it new and deep and profound meaning. It's going to help you make the connection. I'm giving you some context for what's about to happen. This whole message, this whole address that Jesus gives to the disciples, I think, is him giving them handholds for stuff that's about to be devastating and disorienting. They don't have a grid for the Messiah to be betrayed and arrested and crucified, even though he's told them at least three times that's what's going to happen. They're not ready for it. They don't have a grid for one of their own people, one of their own twelve, these one guy they've been living with for three years to betray Jesus. They don't have a grid for all of them to desert. They don't have a grid for any of the things that are going to happen over the next 12 to 24 hours. And Jesus is is giving them in advance, here's some context for what you're about to experience. Here's some handholds. So when this stuff starts happening, you've at least got uh, the hope of grabbing onto it and, and interpreting it and understanding it correctly. We know it took them a while to put everything in context, just like it probably would have taken us a while as well, but that's what he's doing. And so first he says, here's, here's my death. I'm going to explain this to you, and I'm going to use something that you already know, and I'm going to give you some new meaning behind it. Here's a, a, a handhold, some, some glasses, a grid for you to interpret my death. So was a, there was a very uh, clear and formal structure to the Passover meal. And Jesus says, I've really wanted to eat this meal with y'all, and this is the last time. I'm not going to eat it again until I return. 
until the end of the age. This is it for me. This is the last time I'm going to have this meal. But I've really wanted to do this with y'all. And I think the reason he's wanted to do this with them is to say, I need to explain to y'all what's about to happen. I'm about to introduce a new way of relating to God, and it is huge. And I've been waiting for this moment. Remember, all the way back in chapter 9, Jesus says, or Luke says, Jesus set his face for Jerusalem. This is why. Everything has been building up to these final few hours. We see, again, the forces. We've got the, the dark side, the bad guys over here, and the good guys over here. And we're heading towards this confrontation. And so, again, there's this very formal structure to the meal, and Jesus is working through it. You can see the structure up there up on the screen. You'd have the head of the household, and he would take the first cup of wine and bless it and pass it out, and they would eat these herbs that reminded people of the bitterness of slavery. And then they would take the second cup of wine, and, and the youngest kid, youngest son, would say, Dad, why is tonight different from other nights? And then the father would tell the story of Exodus, and he would use Deuteronomy 25, and he would explain to them, this is why this night is special. This, we're looking back to God delivering our ancestors from Egyptian slavery. We're celebrating the fact that he still delivers us, and we're looking forward to our future deliverance. And then what does it say? He would tell the story of the Exodus. He would take the bread. And that's where Jesus grabs onto that. So after he's just told this story of deliverance, he would pass this unleavened bread out. And as Jesus does that, he says, this is my body. He's giving it new meaning. The bread has always represented haste. We have to get out of Egypt so quick we can't even let bread rise. And what Jesus is saying is I'm giving this some new meaning. Now it's my body which is given for you, and then the then they eat the meal. So they eat that roasted lamb that they've already prepared. And then there's two more cups of wine. That third cup is the one Jesus takes, and he gives it new meaning. These cups of wine all had a scripture tied to them from Exodus six and seven. Out of those chapter six verses six and seven, there are these different lines. We can see that Josh. So all of the cups have a different theme. And Jesus takes that third cup. That's the one after the meal is eaten. The redemption cup. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And with mighty acts of judgment. And he says, this is how I'm redeeming you now. Through my blood that I've poured out for you. For the forgiveness of your sins. He's given new meaning to this. When they think deliverance. They think these ten plagues and the parts, I want you to think broken body and poured out blood. And he says, I'm establishing a new covenant with you. That is huge. Covenant is the way we relate to God. It's the terms of relationship. And there's lots of, lots of elements that we don't have time to go into. But in general, the new covenant takes what's external and makes it internal. And there's a couple of places in the Old Testament where we see hints of this new covenant. One is Jeremiah 31. The scripture will be up here on the screen. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with you. I will put my law in your minds. I will write it on your hearts. I will be your God and you will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Part of the new covenant is Jesus is saying, this blood, this is your deliverance from sin and from Satan and from death. Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats cleanses us externally. 
It can never take away our sin. It's the blood of Jesus that cleanses our conscience. There's this idea. Can you see the next one? It's external versus internal. The old covenant is a band-aid. It's fine for what it is. The new covenant, it's, it's medicine. It's internal. It's addressing the root of the problem. Not just covering over a wound, but actually healing from the inside out. Jeremiah, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you, write my law on your heart. I'm going to write my law on your mind. I'm going to forgive your sins. I'm taking what has been external and I'm going to make it internal. You don't have to wear band-aids anymore. You don't have to sacrifice animals anymore that just cleanse you externally. Because of my death, you'll be cleansed internally. The root issue will be taken care of, moving from the old covenant to the new covenant. Ezekiel 36 also speaks of the new covenant. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. There's the dealing with our sin, what we've been set free from. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. There's the one element of the new covenant. There's many. One is Jesus' death for us. He forgives our sins and makes right relationship with God possible. We've been set free from sin and Satan and death. Another element is we've been set free for obedience. The old covenant you can see is that like it's like the owner's manual for a car. It's external. It says, here's what you do. Read this and you'll know all of the rules to keep. And then you'll know all of the sacrifices to make once you break the rules. That's what the old covenant is. That's a... It's, that's rough, but that's what it is in general. Here's the rules. Here's how you need to relate to me. Here are the Ten Commandments, and here are all of the things that fall out from the Ten Commandments, all 613 laws in the Old Testament. And then here are the things that you need to do when you blow it. When you screw up, here's the things that you need to do. You sacrifice pigeons. You sacrifice a dove for this. You sacrifice a sheep for this. You get the... Ashes of a cow sprinkled on you for this. You sacrifice a goat for this. You give me grain offerings for this. You pour out wine for this. Here are all the things that you do, and here are the days that you do it. That's what it looks like for you to relate to me. Those are the terms of the Old Covenant. You do that, and then here's what I'm going to do back. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to take care of you. Those types of things. The New Covenant is gasoline. It is not a book. It's gasoline. It's the Holy Spirit within us, enabling us to be righteous. I'm going to take your heart of stone... From you, And I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to put my spirit within you. That is huge. No longer are you going to just have to try to strive on your own to live righteously. No longer is this law going to be a weight on your back that you're carrying around. That's not the way it is anymore. I'm going to put my spirit within you. In Romans, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same spirit that lives within us. He empowers us to live righteously. He empowers us to obey. He empowers us to live a holy life. If you are not constantly cultivating relationship with the Holy Spirit, then by default, you're living under the old covenant. Those are your only two choices. Your choices are to live externally. I'm going to do my best to keep the rules, whatever it is you determine the rules to be. Or I'm going to recognize God has given me his spirit. And through him, I can live a righteous and holy life. Those are your only two choices. The resources to live out the new covenant are the Holy Spirit, is the Holy Spirit. He is the resource. So 
So when you think new covenant, think death and resurrection of Jesus, yes, that forgives you from, sets you free from. Also think giving of the Holy Spirit. That empowers you to, that sets you free for. God's expectation for us is faithfulness and fruitfulness, and the Holy Spirit is the one who enables that. There's a, there's a movement in the church, and you may have heard it, and it's wonderful. It's this huge focus on grace, 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 all the time. And that's wonderful. I'm so glad that we live under the grace and the mercy of God, and that he does not treat us according to our behavior, but according to his love and kindness. What I don't hear is an emphasis that says, but you don't have to screw up all the time. Yes, there's grace for when you do, but do you know God has given you his Holy Spirit? And so you can actually live a righteous life. Doesn't mean you'll live perfectly, but you don't have to blow it 35 times a day. And you don't have to do that. You can live faithfully before him. You can love God and you can love people. You can be fruitful. You don't have to be barren. You can pray for people and God can work. You can take ground for the kingdom. Like there's faithfulness and fruitfulness for us. But only if you're cultivating life in the spirit. And so I want to strongly encourage you. What does that look like? Very simply, Paul in Ephesians 5 says, be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. That's, that's just a prayer. God, fill me with your spirit today. You've got to give me, you've got to help me, empower me, give me grace to love my family because I won't. I'm selfish, left to my own devices. My compassion wears out pretty quick if you're not constantly renewing that. Holy Spirit, fill me. You've got to, you've got to help me. You've got to empower me. To live righteously. These are all of the, the ditches that I tend to fall into. I lose my temper here. I get frustrated here. I talk bad about people here. And with apart from you, your empowerment of me, I'm going to fall into all of those snares. So I need you to fill me today. I need you to help me. Left to my own devices, I'm going to live selfishly. I'm not going to look at other people. I'm not going to think twice about what you're doing in my city. I'm not going to think twice about what you're doing in my neighborhood. I'm not going to think twice about what you're doing in my home. I'm just trying to get it all done. And so if I'm going to be fruitful, Holy Spirit, you've got to fill me. That's all you're praying, and you're praying that regularly. That's cultivating life in the Spirit. That's recognizing that God has said, here's gas for the car. I'm not just giving you an owner's manual and saying, figure it out. This is not the fled Flintstone mobile where you're picking it up and doing it with your legs. I'm putting gas in the car. Just, you got to just fill it up. Fill it up. Next. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The son of man will go as it has been decreed. But woe to the man who betrays them. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. So again, context. This is out of the blue. One of the twelve, one of the ones he's been living with and investing in for three years. One of them is going to betray. Now, they know enough about Jesus to know he's never been wrong. He hadn't been wrong yet. So they're going, it's going to happen. Who's it going to be? Which one of us is it going to be? And obviously, they're probably all going, not me, not me. And they're trying to figure out. Who it is. When I read that passage, I see this tension between the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. What does Jesus say? The hand of him is going to betray me is at the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. Psalm forty one nine says the Messiah will be betrayed. Zechariah, I think it's eleven, 
12 and 13 say, we'll be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, which is what Judas got. And so we may say, well, how is it Judas's fault if it was something that was decreed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before he was even born? But Jesus says, woe to the man. And Matthew, he says, it's better for that guy that had never been born than for him to betray me. So how do we hold those things together? If God, if God has decreed that, that the Messiah will be betrayed, then how can he hold Judas responsible for his actions, especially when Satan enters? And we didn't bring that into the equation. And that's tension in the Bible. There's this tension in the Bible between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And most of us tend to fall one way or to fall the other. And I want to encourage you to live into both and to lean the, lean the other way a little bit. God's sovereignty is comforting to us. It lets us know God is in control. And so that gives us security. It gives us peace. When we think about the, the, the chaos of our lives and the chaos of the world, it's comforting to say, you know what? He's like the potter, and he's shaping, and he's molding, and he is in control. That can quickly lead to passivity on a personal level. Well, what's going to happen is going to happen. It really doesn't matter what I do. Or God's, God's doing it, and it can kind of lead this fatalistic approach to life. My behavior, my choices, they don't matter at all because God's going to do what he's going to do. If that tends to be the ditch that you fall into, I want you to lean the other way. There's, there's also freedom. There's human responsibility. Our choices do have consequences. There's a challenge for us. It's comforting to say God is in control. It's a challenge and an invitation to say your choices matter. Now, if we lean too far in that direction, we can quickly become anxious and fearful because we think everything relies on our choices. And if we mess up, then the whole plan gets blown up. And somehow we're responsible for the destruction of the earth because we didn't do something right. Both of those ditches are, they're not good. Becoming overly passive or becoming overly burdened, overly anxious. You want to hold both of those things in tension They're both scriptural. You'll read scripture that talks very clearly about God's sovereignty and talks very clearly about human freedom. This is not necessarily theology class, so I'm going to move on past that. But I want you to hear both of those things are true and for you to know yourself enough to know which way you tend to lean. So maybe you can lean back the other way just a bit. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. It's kind of hard to figure out how that happened. He just said he's going to die, and they're trying to figure out who's number one. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, the one who rules like the one who serves, for who is greater than the one who, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? It's the one who sits at the table. Is it not the one who sits at the table? Yes, but I'm among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So he's, he's, again, this is all about context. I'm going to be betrayed, but I know that's coming. So y'all don't need to freak out and think somehow things are getting away from me. I know I'm going to be betrayed. And then also, you guys have done great. Y'all have been faithful. You've stood by me through through difficult times, Judas is out of the picture. He's already left, according to John at this point. So he's looking at these other guys, and he's saying, y'all stuck with me, and you're going to be rewarded for that. There's a leadership for you. But I, when you step into leadership, 
I don't want you leading the way you've seen. In this world that you live in, leadership is motivated by self-interest. So in the Roman world, rich people gave money as they wanted to to help people to fund private projects. So the tax, they didn't collect, taxes weren't necessarily collected from the rich. The treasury was usually not that strong. And so it it required rich people. So if things were going to happen, it required rich people donating money. So it's like when we have special projects and we put somebody's name on it. You know, they they gave this money for this. We named this road or bridge or building for somebody. That's, That's the Roman world. And when a rich person gave, their status increased. So the more money they gave the higher their reputation climbed. And so they were giving to get, and that also opened up opportunities for them to have public office. And so they got something out of their giving, motivated by self-interest. What Jesus says is you're not going to lead like that. When you lead, you're not going to lead in in a way that's motivated by self-interest. You're not going to lead in such a way that says, what am I getting in return from the people who I'm leading? You're going to lead like I led, which is serving. In John 13, he just washed the disciples' feet before this meal. This is, the, this is the context, the setting for when Jesus washes feet. He has just walked into the room from them, with them. He's washed their feet, and then they have this Passover meal. And he's pointing back to that, saying, remember, I just did that. That's what I did, and that's how you're going to lead. That's the picture for us, washing feet. If you wrestle with the whole idea of leadership, many of you have positions of influence. In your home, you have positions of influence in our community, you have positions of influence in your school or in your job. I want to say, are you leading the way he says to lead? Are you truly serving other people without looking to get anything back? No self-interest involved at all. It takes two things at least to be able to lead that way. One is humility and the other is compassion. In John 13, when Jesus washes feet, we won't have time to dive all the way into this, but listen to this sentence. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. So he knew his position. God the Father has put all things under my power. And he knew that he had come from God. He knew where he came from and was returning to God. He knew where he was going. He has this strong sense of identity. Jesus knows who he is. So... He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. The serving comes out of the identity. Because Jesus is confident and secure, he knows where he came from. He knows where he's going. He knows that God has put all things under his feet. Therefore, he's free to serve because he doesn't need anything from anybody. And he actually washes Judas' feet. John says, and the verse right before the one I read, knowing Judas is going to betray him, He still washes his feet. He doesn't need anything from them. If you're truly going to serve others, that's what humility is. It's agreeing with God. Do you know who you are as a son or as a daughter? If you don't, you can't serve. You will constantly be looking to other people for validation, for affirmation, or to give you something. You won't be free to serve people. Some of them are going to be jerks, and you're not going to want to serve them. Some of them are going to be more more influential than you, and you're going to want something from them. Some of them are going to be ungrateful. If, you're, if there's true humility in your heart, if you know who you are, you know where you came from and you know where you're going, you know the position that you have in Christ, then you're free to wash their feet. It doesn't matter how they respond to you. Whether it's Peter or whether it's Judas, it doesn't matter. Compassion. 
Compassion is not, it's not bless his heart. That's pity. Compassion is this deep feeling that motivates to action. Jesus is constantly motivated by compassion, and he never experiences compassion that he doesn't act on. And so for us, if you struggle with this whole idea of serving, it may be that you don't, that you don't really have compassion for the people who you're interacting with. And you don't have to gin that up. Remember the Holy Spirit. He lives within us. So you're praying, God, I need compassion. And it's okay to pray for compassion for your spouse if you don't have it. And it's okay to pray for compassion for your children. And it's okay to pray for compassion for your parents. And it's okay to pray for compassion for your friends. It's, that's fine. It's asking, God, I need compassion for these people who I'm going to be interacting with today. You've got to give me the ability to serve them because I don't want to. Their feet are nasty, and I don't want to wash them. And so if that's the posture that I'm supposed to take, one, you've got to remind me of who I am as a son, and I've got to recognize that what I'm doing here, it's, it's coming out of that. It's coming out of my identity as a son. It's not in order to establish my identity at all. I'm already confident in who I am in you. So that's locked up. You've adopted me into your family. What these people's reaction to me, what people give me or don't give me, doesn't add anything. It doesn't change my identity. So from that place of security, I'm asking for compassion that I can truly wash the feet of people who I'm going to serve. Men, husbands, we can talk about Ephesians 5. Wives, honor your husbands. What does it say? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. This picture, you want to know how to love your wife, you start washing her feet. Ask him, what does it look like for me to serve my wife? Don't ask her to obey you. Don't ask her to follow you. Don't say, I'm the leader. If you're doing that, you've missed it. You missed it a long time ago. If you're having to demand then she doesn't feel secure because you're not serving her well. So ask God very practically, how do I wash your feet today? Physically, what does that mean? Do I get up first? Do I fix breakfast? Do I, do I pack lunches? Do I run the carpool? What does it mean for me to wash your feet? Is that what it means? Does it mean I've got to put my phone in the drawer when I get home so I'm present at dinner? You've got to tell me, how do I wash your feet? If you're not praying that prayer regularly, I want to encourage you to do that. That was a tangent. Sorry. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. So go back to that. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of y'all. All 11 of you he's wanted to sift. But I prayed for you specifically, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. Notice, Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter early on. Now he reverts back to Simon. It's interesting to think about why he may have done that. I think Peter's faith is on the line here. But Peter replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you out, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. Remember, that was one of those missionary journeys where he sent them to different cities. 
And Jesus said, but now if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It's written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, Jesus replied. They don't get it. They're like, we're buying swords. And he's going, you didn't hear anything I just said. You missed it. He's trying to paint. Here's a new context. Previously, you could expect hospitality. Now you're going to expect hostility. There's hostility from Satan. He's wanting to sift y'all and figure out who's a fraud and who's not. It reminds us of Job 1 and 2, Satan the accuser. Hey, God, the only reason Job follows you is because you've made him rich. Hey, God, the only reason these guys are following you is because Jesus is physically with them. Or whatever the accusation is. And he's saying, give me, give me a shot at them and let's see who's a fraud and who's not? And then Jesus looked specifically at Peter and says, I prayed for you. You're going to fall. But when you return, and he gives him a job. It says, strengthen your brother. Some of you need to hear that today. You've denied on some level. You've hidden. You've become a chameleon. There's something you're embarrassed and ashamed about. And so you think you're disqualified. He can't use me anymore. I'm divorced. He can't use me anymore. I've struggled with pornography. He can't use me anymore. I've had an eating disorder. Whatever it is, you need to recognize his prayers are always effective. And when he restores, he restores fully, not partially. Peter, when you come back, here's your job. You can look at Acts and see Peter got it. He got it fully. He becomes a leader in the church, and he does strengthen the fellow brothers and sisters. And for some of you this morning, you need to hear that. There's, we do live in a hostile context, and the enemy comes after you, and sometimes people will as well. But Jesus is our great high priest. He intercedes for us right now, and his prayers are effective. If you repent then you can be restored fully. That is his desire. Not that you walk around with the scarlet letter on your chest for the rest of your life or not that you live as a second-class citizen and think you have to sit at the back of the bus because of something you have done. You need to hear that word to Peter. I pray for you, 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 you. When you've come back, strengthen your brothers. Let's pray. We're going to close with communion. That was a bunch of stuff. So you can just grab onto whatever you want to grab onto. There's probably something there for everything. It's kind of like a buffet. You just take what you want. We're going to take communion. A lot of people up here, you'll break off a piece of bread and you'll dip it in juice. We'll have gluten-free communion here up on these tables. Kim will lead you all to come forward one row at a time. That's the logistics. I want you in your heart to kind of grab onto the reality. When we do this, he said, do this in remembrance of me. Remember me. Remember what I did. This bread, this is my body given for you. This juice, this is representative of my blood poured out for you. This is the way I'm redeeming you. It's through my crucified body. It's through my blood Poured out. I've set you free from sin and Satan and death. There's a new way of relating to God now. And it's not based on your behavior. It's based on his disposition towards you.
as a loving heavenly father. It's based on the life and the death and the resurrection of his son. It's based on his grace poured out upon you. It's based on the spirit of adoption who lives within you. As you come forward today, do so recognizing you live under a new covenant. And take this bread and this juice as a reminder, as a in remembrance of what he's done. Some of you, again, you're, you're Simon right now. And you need to hear him say to you, Peter. I've got things for you to do. Stop wallowing in what you did. Ask for forgiveness. Repent. Move on. Not flippantly. Peter was not flippant. But faithfully move on. I've got stuff for you to do. As you come forward and take communion, I want you to do so recognizing He forgives your sins as far as the east is from the west. He actually forgets about your sins. And he he forgives you of all of your sins, not just some of them. You know, when you erase something with a pencil, you can kind of see the outline still. That's not how he forgives. It's, It's white out. You can't see anything underneath it anymore. He's not treating you according to those past sins, so why are you choosing to live according to them? Some of you are wrestling with your position of influence, and you need to learn how to serve, and you need to ask God for humility and compassion. Some of you, it's, there are other areas of sinfulness, and you're going, I've given Satan an open door into my life. So close it. Close it. Repent of the areas where you're sinning. Forgive people who've sinned against you. We're also going to have ministry teams up here. Remember during Lent, we're praying for physical healing. And so if you've got a physical condition after you take communion, I would love for you to go to one of those teams and let them anoint you with oil and pray for you to be physically healed. I just want you to take advantage of this new covenant that Jesus instituted. 2,000 years ago. So God, my prayer for every man and woman in this room is that we would live again in the freedom of being adopted sons and daughters. And most of us, we just live less than that. We don't get it. Every other relationship we have, there's a performance component to it. And so to think about living freely as adopted children, it's just, it's difficult. So help us. Show us the places where we're relating to you based on our behavior and not based on our identity as sons and daughters. God, I pray that you would show us not just what you've set us free from, but what you've set us free for. God, I pray for people who are empty. And as they take bread and juice, they would say, God, fill me with your spirit. I need power. I can't do this on my own. I need power to live. Fill me up. Show us what you've set us free for, what you've set us free to do. I pray for those, particularly those, the Simons in the room, who for whatever reason have disqualified themselves 
from service. God, would they hear you saying today, Peter, I've got something for you to do. When you turn back, I pray they would turn back today. They would hear you giving them an assignment, a destiny, a calling that they can live into. So come, Holy Spirit, I pray, and work in our hearts. God, I do just one other. I do want to pray. There's so many people of influence in this room, and I pray, God, that we would lead by getting, by going last. We would lead by going low. You would show us what it is to truly serve, to wash feet without looking for anything in return. There would be a, just a, a revolution, God, of service in our community. And as we begin to wash feet of the Judases that we interact with, wash feet of the Pharisees and the religious leaders, wash feet of even people who are you know, their enemies in a lot of ways of what you're doing. God, you would use those acts of service to break through, to cause people to take a second look at your son. Not so We don't want them to look twice at us, but we want them to take a long, hard look at you. So I pray for all of those things now in these next couple of minutes that you would just work, God, that you would heal bodies and that you would heal hearts. In Jesus' name.